Hello, podcast listeners. This is Veronica Volk with WXXI News, co-host of Finding Tammy Joe. Um, you'll have to excuse me. My voice is a little bit off this morning because I did a lot of talking last night, along with my co-reporter and co-host, Gary Craig. This is the last episode of our podcast, and we recorded it live in front of an audience. We had some time for some live interviews with investigator Brad Schneider with the Livingston County Sheriff's Office and retired Sheriff John York. Um, We also had time for audience questions and a little bit of back and forth between Gary and I. This episode is a lot different from the other episodes we've put out. It's longer, it's more raw, and I hope that you like it. We get really in-depth with some of the details of this case, including theories about what might have happened to Tammy and who might have killed her. So I hope that you enjoy it. We certainly appreciate your support and your listenership throughout this project. You can continue the conversation online at hashtag Tammy Joe. You can email us at findingtammyjoepodcast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening. Previously on Finding Tammy Joe. We were supposed to come down here and start combining this field that was in the corn at that time. We decided to go down to the corner and get a cup of coffee, and that's when we noticed, you know, the body. And we secured the area, and we began an investigation that we thought would be a very normal, what uh, we found out, everything but normal homicide investigation. This was a big deal in Livingston County. Why would you buy somebody dinner? and then kill them 25 minutes later. Most of these cases, they're just people like you and me, and they just don't have any identifying material with them, and they ended up literally stowed in the back rooms of morgues across the U.S. We only ever needed somebody to report her missing. That's all we ever needed. You know, I couldn't find anybody still in Florida that knew or had heard about her, so I Googled her. So I contacted them, and a missing report was filed. When I saw the picture, it immediately clicked with me. I immediately recognized her and said, hey, that's Kelly Doe. I can't tell you how proud I am uh, to announce that we have identified our Jane Doe from 1979. Hard to imagine that somebody can just throw a child away. It's a great day to give her a name. So many people have said so many truly hateful things. However, I would like to put it into perspective. We were not looking for a deceased child. We were looking to reunite with a grown, vibrant woman that escaped a dark place. I have a lot of good memories with her. She was a good kid. The last thing I remember is, you know, she walks up to the condo door, the door opens, you can't see anybody, and then she walks in and maybe gives me a little wave and the door closes. She certainly had some habits that made her vulnerable. I knew she ran away. I ran away several times, but I didn't know that she traveled outside of our comfort zone. You know, whoever did this definitely did not want to be traced in any way. People's relationship changes over time, and there may be somebody that knows something. 
I'm Veronica Volk with WXXI News. And I'm Gary Craig with the Democrat and Chronicle. And this is Finding Tammy Joe, the podcast. <laughs> um, I just want to start again by thanking you all for being here. This is a project very near and dear to our hearts. And all the voices that you just heard all tell a different part of the story of the life and death of Tammy Jo Alexander. And everyone that we've spoken to has a different theory about what might have happened to her, about how she might have succumbed to her fate. And the first among these theories is what we've been calling the serial killer theory. Now, Gary, tell us a little bit about who John York was looking at in this theory. Sure, and we're lucky to have retired Sheriff John York here uh, tonight. And you probably heard in some of the earlier episodes there was this talk about the serial killers. Uh, we had some of the uh, Sheriff York's interviews with Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole, both in the podcast and the full videos of them online. And uh, what you hear there, it's interesting because as he told us, there, there's this symmetry between their stories. There's these things that they said that were similar about they were making these claims to have killed Tammy Joe together, and they were separated by prisons, you know, uh, Tool in Florida, Lucas in Texas, and there should have been, and by all accounts, there was no way for them to communicate. Yet there was this, their stories aligned in some ways as to what they said happened. The, the flip side of that is, and these were men both known to be just, they, they took, they did enough killings, unfortunately, but they took claim for many, many that they didn't do. And when you hear their stories, and if you saw the videos, perhaps you, you saw this, uh, there, there, were, there were things they said that just did not match up with the facts of the case. So you're left, as with so many things with this case, this could it have been, because how could they have told the same story if they were separated and they didn't communicate, but at the same time, the story didn't necessarily align with the facts. There was also another serial killer that they were looking at. Uh, yes, there was uh, Christopher Wilder who, uh, from Australia. And he basically... He was, at the time, living in Tampa, Florida. He's a race car driver. He's a multiple, multiple, multiple serial abductor, rapist, and murderer. That comment about the race car driver is interesting because one of the most distinctive features of Tammy Joe investigation was her distinctive red jacket. Yes, and again, if you heard, you know, Sheriff York just went to the ends of the earth to, to trace, to, to try to trace his jacket and find out how they were manufactured, who manufactured them. And unfortunately, it turned out there were, there were many that were manufactured. Uh, the, the thing with Wilder is he had this, he was a race car driver. He had this sort of modus operandi where he would entice young women, vulnerable women. He would convince them that he could provide them a modeling career. And, and you can see, you know, from the background, the history we know of Tammy Jo, that she would be susceptible to something like this. And we know, you know, when Sheriff York was actually interviewing Otis Toole in Florida, Wilder was in western New York trying to kill a woman who thankfully escaped a young woman. Uh, the, the flip side of that is, without getting too graphic, the nature whereby he killed people was, was sort of distinctively different than what we're talking about here. So again, you're left with this, there's a lot that says it's possible and there's this flip side of it that makes you think maybe not. And that's just, it's been the, the dilemma with this case all along. That's right. And some of the details that would have made Tammy susceptible to um, falling prey to a serial killer also put her in contact with a lot of truck drivers, which brings us to the second theory of how she might have died. Yeah, there's, uh, it, 
again, if you've heard the podcast, and if you haven't, please listen. Uh, Laurel Now, the good friend of Tammy Jo, you know, she tells how she hitchhiked all the way across the country from Florida to California, the two of them. They were 15 years old at the time. Uh, Pamela, Tammy Jo's sister, talks about how they would run away and hitchhike sometimes. So Tammy Jo, and they're, you know, while they're, you know, her parents had a restaurant, though it wasn't what you would think of a typical when we talk about truck stop, but truckers did stop there, but it wasn't a place where you'd have room for dozens and dozens of trucks. But, but Tammy Jo was clearly very comfortable around the trucking community. So you know, that's another theory, that did she catch a ride with somebody who brought her all the way up here, and sadly she met her fate here? Right, but we did talk to at least one person who wasn't convinced on this theory. Her name is Marge Bradford, and you might remember her from episode two. She was the waitress at the Lima Diner. And um, she remembers things being a little bit differently. In this clip I'm gonna play, you'll hear Gary ask her if she remembers seeing a truck at the Lima Diner. From what you saw, he wasn't driving a truck when he left the road. No, no, not a, no, not a tractor trailer. Oh, I would have noticed that because <laughs> you can only back then the parking and you no, can only park. Parking for no, not in Lima. But one of the things that Marge did say was that the people that she was that um, the man that Tammy Joe was with, they seemed to have a friendly relationship, which brings us to the third theory of how Tammy may have died, which is the theory that she was murdered by somebody that she knew personally. Yeah, and there's. There's a couple of elements when we talk about this. Uh, there's her boyfriend, Kevin Williams, who has this recollection of seeing her going into a condo after they had lunch together in St. Petersburg and not knowing who else was there. Uh, you know, the, the law enforcement that's here tonight has really tried to work with him to see if he can remember where that is, but, but to no avail. And then there's also this sort of odd place, Rainbow Prison Ministries, which is in the mountains of northern Georgia. And, and this was learned by law enforcement from some letters that Tammy Jo wrote Kevin, which showed that she was there. And, and you know, best we can put together, it was a place where there was, this, there was this healing minister. He and his wife ran this, and they would work with people that were coming out on parole and perhaps help them transition. Uh, the current property owner even talks about a facility there that he believes was built by parolees. But, but the pro and so obviously this is an avenue you think, wow, you know, because Tammy Jo is at a place, there's parolees there, perhaps she meets one of them, and... Sometime later, they got to get together because there is evidence that she went back to Florida after being at Rainbow Prison Ministries. The, the difficulty is there's just no, it's, it's as if this place never existed almost. Uh, the, the, the man and the woman, husband, wife who own it are deceased. Their son, who by all accounts, and I've talked to a number of people that, that sort of do remember the place, and uh, he's, uh, he's a guy that if he didn't if there wasn't funny factors, you'd, other factors, you'd probably consider a suspect based on everything everybody says because he seems to have led a pretty unusual life. Um, but that said, if you go back to Marge Bradford, the composite that she gave law enforcement of the person that she believed, you know, would believe to be Tammy Joe's with, that does not match the appearance of the son. So again, there's so much with this case that, and I'm sure law enforcement far more than I feels this, you know, there's, you, you think you've got something in your grasp that you think is going to finally evolve into something and just somehow just it's like sand in your hand. It just constantly is just flowing out. And one of the most difficult parts of this case is also finding people that knew Tammy Jo Alexander. Aside from some family and a, a handful of friends that we've spoken to, we're not sure of, you and I are not sure of other people that may have known her during her relatively short life, which limits, um, you know, her, her connections and limits the people who might be suspects for such a thing. 
Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, we've talked about Kevin, the boyfriend. Obviously, Laurel was very close to her. She shared letters, which you, know, you can see on our, our website. And you know, we, we have some of the podcasts. She shared letters that Tammy Jo wrote to her. And, and obviously, Pamela, her sister, and there's some other relatives that, that we haven't spoken with. But it's a very small circle to try to, to recreate you know, this young woman's very short life. And then the mystery of how she went from there in Florida in this very troubled, clearly dysfunctional home to here. Right, but we do know that law enforcement is testing the DNA of at least three people against a profile they were able, able to salvage from Tammy Joe's jacket. So we're gonna bring up somebody who's currently investigating that. And uh, if you could join us, please, investigator Brad Schneider. So Brad has been kind enough uh, through the months to put up with our, our uh, multiple interviews and many persistent phone calls, um, probably more than, <laughs> more than he'd like. Uh, but, but one of the things that Veronica and I talked about, it keeps coming back, and no matter, I think, how many times we've tried to explain it, uh, there seems to be this belief that, oh, you're, you're testing DNA, you're, you're moments away from finding the killer. Can, can you talk about that, what is happening with the DNA? Yeah, uh, the DNA process, the testing process, is not like it is seen on TV. Um, it takes quite a while. We are using the FBI lab, which is in Quantico, Virginia. So I had to send the uh, swabs to a local FBI agent who had to then send them down to the lab in Quantico. Now, utilizing their lab, obviously there's many agencies that rely upon the Federal Bureau of Investigation to do work, so it is kind of a waiting process. There is no uh, preference when it comes to whose DNA sample is going to be tested first. So it is a process that does take some time. And just on that point, I mean, you have the DNA profile from the jacket and a male profile and, and three people you're matching it against, but there's, there's no assurance that obviously one of those is going to be the match. It's just a a crapshoot, basically. I mean, a, a logical crapshoot, but a crapshoot. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, there are some unknown male profiles that are on file. Um, the three swabs that I've submitted are people of interest, and I stress that, and I've stressed that through many interviews. They're only persons of interest. They are not suspects. Um, so, obviously, there's a reason why I asked for their DNA samples and why I asked to have them uh, tested against the unknown profiles. Um, but, yes, they're there is no guarantee that there will be a match. And, and the three, as we understand, all gave willingly, correct? That is correct. And after you test these DNA profiles, if you, know, you don't find a match, then where does the investigation go from there? Uh, it'll continue as it does every day. Um, just because we don't get a DNA match doesn't mean that I'm going to dis. Uh, disqualify any of these three gentlemen as potentially being involved in this case. Um, it just means that, again, I'm like Gary kind of said, you know, you feel like you have something in your hand and then all of a sudden it's like sand falling through your fingertips. Um, it's just going to continue as it has for the past 35 years. Um, if, if this lead doesn't pan out or if this these DNA tests don't pan out, I just continue with everything else that I have to work on with the case. And you're obviously limited as to what you can tell us, as you've made clear to us in multiple interviews, of course, <laughs> but uh, understandably. But, um, I, I mean, at this point, do you feel like you have still have 
something in hand, not talking about the DNA, but other things that are potential for exploration? Or do you feel like the evidence that's been accumulated, interviews, et cetera, over the past year have largely been exhausted? Uh, no, there, there actually are some things that I've been looking into uh, that even though they seem to have somewhat dead-ended are still very interesting to me and I'm still working on trying to get them, uh, you know, get answers to some of the questions. Uh, you brought up the Rainbow Prison Ministries and I still would like to know more information about that and I'm just not able to come up with anything as you said that you guys are having the same problem. Um, and you had mentioned the son. The son is actually deceased as well. Yes, so, I forgot to note that. So the parents and the son of this place are deceased. So again, another hurdle for me. Um, so no, as far as are, have I exhausted the leads that have come in? No. Um, there are some leads that are still open. There are uh, several leads that the FBI are, are currently working on for me uh, due to the location of those. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot that's still out there that I'm still working on. We're going to uh, make a switch of law enforcement here from, from the current. Thank you, Brad. Thanks. Thank you so Thanks. much, Investigator Schneider. Uh, to, to, to the previous, I'd like to welcome up, welcome retired Sheriff John York. Um, if you've been listening, you have. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, if you've been listening to the podcast, and again, I think most of you have, uh, I cannot tell you how many folks have commented to us about the passion that comes through when they hear John York talk about this case just through the podcast. And, and, and we can tell you, trust me, it's, it's sincere and it's real. There's no question about that. And so we'll start off, gosh, I feel like <laughs> he, it, it, both Brad Schneider and John York have been so giving with us as far as just you know, the time they've been, been willing to give to talk to us. And here we are doing it again, so I really appreciate it. But what, what is it that with you, I mean, like we said, the passion is real. What is it about this case that just stuck in your heart? I think it's like any other case, Gary. Uh, she was a young child. She was victimized. She was brutally murdered. Nobody, nobody has a right to do that. But I do want to say on behalf of Tammy Joe, the real credit to tonight belongs to Veronica and Gary. Without them, this podcast would not be real. We wouldn't be reaching thousands of people who give us an opportunity to follow one more lead. We wouldn't have the opportunity to give justice to a victim like Tammy Joe. I want to thank Carl Koppelman. He took the time, the volunteerism, to make the difference in contacting Laurel Noel, who in turn contacted Brad who in turn followed it through with the Hernando County Sheriff's Office. Those people made the difference whether or not she was buried with a name instead of unidentified girl. I'm so proud. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Sheriff York, one of the things that you told us about in your interviews that we didn't get a chance to get to over the course of the podcast was some of the ways that um, police procedures changed over the course of this investigation and some of the ways that this investigation made them change. Do you think you could elaborate a little bit on that? When we first found our victim, we could put a radio from a car or a serial number or a gun in a computer and do an offline search. We could not do that with a person. You couldn't put the height, the weight, the dental charts, the fingerprint 
identification, all that information to do a computer and do an offline search. Over 150,000 people come up missing in the United States every year, some by choice, some by tragedy. The amount of people that come up missing that need to be identified has been improved greatly by both some of this technology and by the DNA that Brad was talking about. The changes that have taken place in law enforcement are amazing, just like this podcast. We didn't even have a fax machine in most of the police agencies when we began this investigation. We now have some of the most state-of-the-art technology on earth in our agency that's going to help Brad bring this to resolve. You always said that the internet would, would be key. I mean, it seems as if you were proven right there to some degree. Well, the BBC came over from Europe here a few years ago and did an interview on why I thought the internet would bring this to resolve. We have exhausted so many leads. We had run down over 10,000 leads across the United States, America, Interpol, Canada, the Dominican Republic, I can't even tell you, Latin America, Mexico, but we never got the answer that we got from the internet. And just one more, you also talked about, this is the part of it, when we very, the very first time we talked, you spoke about how you actually had a contact that put posters of Tammy Joe up in the very community where we now know she was from. I had a friend of mine who left the state police in New York because of health issues and went to the Hernando County Sheriff's Office, Brooksville, Florida, started a place called Daystar, similar to the Salvation Army in this area. He put flyers of Tammy Joe all over that area. You can't even imagine that a small community like Brooksville would not have somebody that goes in there that didn't recognize her photograph. It was absolutely heartbreaking. Thank you, Sheriff. We appreciate it. Thank you so it. much, yes. Sheriff York. If I could, real quick, folks, uh, Sheriff York's given everybody else credit for this, and Gary and Veronica talked about this man's passion. I started at the Sheriff's Office 17 years ago, and when I walked in the door, you didn't walk in there as an employee not knowing this case, and that was because of this man right here. He kept this case alive, he kept it in the forefront, and he's the reason why this case was never truly a cold case. So, Sheriff, you're giving everybody else credit. You deserve just as much credit, if not more. That I, I tell you, somebody who's thank you, Brad, so much for that because it's it, you've seen it up close and personal, obviously from the office, and and as somebody that's gone back through the, the clips of reporting and all that we've done through the years, just your work to keep this in the public forefront was so obvious because whether it was anniversaries, whether it was a possibility of new evidence, every possibility you had of putting this story out there, you did, and you were always just clearly a willing person when the media approached you. So I, I thank you so much. I agree wholeheartedly. Absolutely. If not for your passion and also the access that you gave us to the details of this case from your perspective, this project wouldn't, wouldn't be possible. So thank you so much, Sheriff York. Um, and actually, that leads us into the question I wanted to ask you, Gary, which is, what was it about this case that made you want to investigate it further? It's, uh, I mean, it's the, the, I think it started out as the consummate mystery to me. Um, you, you, you were, I think, very, from the beginning, 
you wanted to tell the story of Tammy Joe, and, and I think that the sensitivity and humanity that comes through in the podcast, which I think is a, to me is the very backbone of it, is, is, is trust me, Veronica made sure that was part of the storytelling. And, and, and I, as we went along, also became wanting to know more about Tammy Joe. In the beginning, it was more just to me, it was the mystery of how could this have happened? How could this person be missing for so long, nobody be looking for her, and just you know, however, you know, decades later, we finally figure out who she is. And then once you sort of turn that curve, just the route that was taken through all those years to get to the point of you know, January of last year where she was identified were just so compelling in and of themselves. And when we started this project, um, it was almost a year, I'm sorry, over a year ago. How has the story changed for you since the beginning of this this undertaking? It's, I mean, I think it's probably become more than a story to me. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's very personal with me now. We, we've spent a lot of time with it. Veronica and I, we recorded episode seven, I guess, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, which was the final pre-produced episode, so to speak. And then we sort of looked at each other after. It was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, we're not going to be recording in the studio again about this story. And it, it, it just became, I mean, more than a mystery. There's just, there's, there's so much about this young woman that you want to know, and obviously just beyond who killed her, but just, just how she got here. And while that was sort of the seed of my interest in the beginning, it, it sort of grew from there. And I want to ask you the same thing, because you, when we first discussed this, Veronica and I were on a panel on Evan Dawson show Connections, and during a break, we started, it was the first time we'd met, uh, we started talking about podcasts, and, and I had an idea for one, and I've told this story before, that Veronica had a, a better idea for one, and, and that was this podcast. And what was it for you that really made you want to do this? For me, I started at WXXI only about a month before um, Tammy Jo Alexander's identity was announced. And from the moment that I was introduced to this case, such a so strong, passionate central figure like John York was, you know, so compelling to me and so inspiring to me that I thought that it was a story that deserved more attention than a 30-second news spot or a 90-second news spot. And it was really going to the memorial uh, service in June of last year that really solidified that idea for me. And hearing stories about Tammy, you know, that I think maybe some of you have heard before, like that she was a girl who liked corduroy pants and turquoise jewelry, something like that that just brings somebody so alive to you and wanting to share those vivid descriptions of this teenage girl in hopes that, you know, preserve um, her humanity. And you actually, I mean, you rode on a bus with some folks who while they were perhaps a little distant from the story and that they weren't immediate family now, it, just, it seemed to show, didn't it, how the community itself had sort of embraced her? Sure, getting on that bus and everyone, you know, embracing each other, it was almost like a reunion of sorts. Um, people were brought together over this girl and they adopted her and it, it, she was central in a lot of ways to this certain community of people. Um, and it was really a lot of, it's the story of a lot of different communities of people coming together to try to, you know, make the impossible possible, bring, you know, this, this story to resolve, bring this case to resolve, and bring an identity to this girl. So do you feel like it's over for you? This, um, it's hard to walk away from a project like this when there are still so many unanswered questions, of course. Um, but, you know, I want to ask you, do you think that you will return to the story at some point? Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, 
it's you know it's as we've heard it's still unresolved and uh, and I will be pestering these folks more uh, and I hope you'll continue to be as accommodating thank you uh, you won't have to come to a little theater I'll just call you on the phone but um, but yes I will I will continue to because it's you sort of you get you're invested in it and not just because I said it's a story it's become much more than that and one of the reasons I think this project is so um, is so fulfilling for us is because we've been able to engage with people like you who've been listening to the podcast and reaching out to us on Twitter, email, Facebook, and we want to take this opportunity to open the floor up to you guys if you have questions. We have microphones on either side of the aisle if you want to come up and ask a question about the case, about the podcast, about the partnership. Don't be shy, otherwise it'll just be the two of us talking to each other, which we've, we've done, done a lot of <laughs> throughout this process. Um, but anyway, you know, don't be shy. And, and if you have questions, uh, we've talked to Investigator Schneider and uh, retired Sheriff York uh, for them that they can answer. Yeah, we'll, we can just hand them the mic also. So. But in the meantime, um, Gary, do you see yourself working with podcasting as a medium again? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've enjoyed it. I, I have. I wasn't sure. I mean, I, I'd sort of stumbled on them as so many did, you know, late with, with Cyril, like so many people, and, and was intrigued by the, the storytelling approach and, uh, and, and, and have enjoyed it. It's just I, I find it a, a compelling way to tell a story, and yeah, I, don't, I don't rule out doing it again. Yes. Hi, I'm Will Cleveland from the DNC. Um, you know, this has been a very interesting dynamic, watching you two kind of play off of each other. So how do you think, you know, you've either benefited from working with each other, or how do you think you've you know, improved in different areas as a journalist from what you guys have been able to learn from each other. Veronica's made me talk a lot more slowly for the radio or for the podcast. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> so, I, I hear my voice now on the radio. And I go, oh, yeah, that's where she told me to I keep saying on the radio. On the podcast, it's tell how old I am. Uh, on the podcast, and I, I say, yeah, that's where she was telling me to slow down. That time I listened, that time I didn't. But, yeah. I think more to Will's point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That, that wasn't the answer he was looking for. <laughs> no. um, obviously, Gary's been reporting on crime and public safety for much, much longer than I have. So I had not, no offense. So I had um, <laughs> none taken. <laughs> I had a lot to learn from him, and um, in in terms of the way he conducts his interviews and the you know the patience that he has with sources, and but also. Um, a little bit relentlessness when it comes to tracking something down and not letting people kind of, not taking no for an answer when it comes to talking people who might be able to provide us with more information, more context, more details. Um, it's something that I've been, you know, I've been learning. It's something that Gary brings to the partnership that I find really valuable. Oh, thank you. I, mm -hmm. I appreciate that. And, and similarly to, I, I can't say it enough. I mean, Veronica's, just, she brought this, like I said earlier, but this sensitivity to me that we could have come across looking like media jackals in some ways with, with this project. And, uh, and, and I, I think the response we've had shows that, that we didn't, and it was purposefully that we didn't. I mean, that was not our aim. And, from, and the, the final produced episodes, you see, trust me, are, are her handiwork. And just the, the vitality and, again, to say humanity that underscore all of those I, I'm proud to be a part of it. I'm proud to work with her. She's just, it's, it's just wonderful to watch what she does. Thank you, Gary. We have another question. Hi, I'm Angie Nassar. I know you guys. 
Um, so uh, I was wondering if you received any emails from listeners throughout the um, podcast series coming up with theories, no, how, no matter how, how crazy they were, um, about who the killer might be or anything else related to Tammy Jo. Uh, yes. Um, okay. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, 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 and the whatever we received, I assume, are probably one hundredth of what what these folks have received through the years, and uh, and and you do get some, and uh, you, you, I mean, some on their face may seem a little bizarre at first. But, but that doesn't mean they're not worth pursuing uh, because sometimes the bizarre turns out to be the real. Uh, sometimes, you know, after a few steps down that investigative road, you can decide this is bizarre for a reason because it is. Um, but yeah, there, there are definitely folks who, who reached out to us along the way and, and, and many who were helpful. I mean, when I talk about the, the, the Rainbow Prison Ministries, uh, that came from people in Georgia who had found the podcast and, and started calling and, and emailing with some stuff. And, um, and so I, I think more often than not, the feedback we've gotten, if it's, if it's based on the investigation, people's theories about the investigation or, or you know, their suppositions about what might have happened ha have been positive. There, there have been some that, you know, there's, you, you probably expect are a little off kilter. Hi, my name is Dr. Llewellyn. Um, Tammy was killed uh, about 35 years ago. Um, if the killer or killers were about 25 at the time, that would make the person about 60 years now. Is that what your assumption is? And the second question, is there a book in the works? Uh, not for me. Um, no. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know. You know, there, there's some age range with the, the, you know, the person who was uh, seen with Marge Bradford. It's, I think it's still just such a mystery. I mean, you know, it's, it's how old the individual may have been, whether he, assuming it's a he, is even still alive. I mean, there's just so much there that just falls into the category of unknown. And the FBI has, you know, done work trying to profile who might have killed her, um, considering she was considered higher risk because she was known to run away on occasion or was known to hitchhike. Um, but of course, you know, until that leads to a suspect or until that leads to some sort of result, we'll never really know. Hi, my name is Daniel Schwartz, and I'm wondering what you guys, what's your thoughts on uh, about the impact of the community where Tammy Jo was found, the fact that she was in Livingston County as opposed to, say, a more urban environment or a bigger place where maybe there would be many more stories like her that would perhaps trumpet and how that has affected the longevity of this case. Right. Well, I think that, um, actually, I, I would like to invite Sheriff York up here to talk a little bit about that, if he could. But um, one of the things that Jim Redmond said, who was a reporter for the DNC at the time of this, um, of this murder, he said, this was the kind of thing that didn't really happen. Um, so I want to see what you think about that comment, Sheriff York. I uh, can't even tell you the amount of community involvement in this. I used to visit the grave site. I especially visited the grave site in November. I can't tell you the amount of flowers, the amount of people that cared. Some of them sitting in this room tonight. Our former county administrator, our friend, the teacher who just spoke. The amount of people, the passion from that community that cared about that child, I can't even tell you. It made us have extra faith 
in the belief our community still cares so much about its people. I will tell you, never hesitate to call your police agency. Never hesitate to report your loved one missing. The police care, and we care as a community, and it really impacted our community. I, I think telling with that, as you know, was in the last episode too, Pamela Dyson, you know, Tammy Joe's sister, made the point that she said when she saw how much love and care was given to Tammy Joe here when she was unidentified versus at her home when she was you know, living in this tough home that she was growing up in is why she chose to leave Tammy Joe here where she was buried. She just thought that this was a much more welcoming spot. Kim Dotson, that actually was my question. Was her sister thinking of taking her home? Has the sister been up here to visit the grave? Well, she was at the memorial service, correct? I think Brad can answer yeah. that because he's spoken with her many times. Uh, the first part of your question there, uh, we did ask Pam, and we were prepared to exhume Tammy's remains and have her shipped down there if that's what Pam and the family wished to do. Uh, they had many conversations amongst themselves and ultimately came to the conclusion that, as Sheriff York had said and, and Gary had said, uh, the amount of love that the community had showed her over the years was a very easy decision for the family to then decide that that's where she needed to stay. Uh, as for Pam being here, yes, she was up here for the memorial service. She spent several days here. Um, I've been in communication with her almost on a regular basis, whether it be through text message, email, telephone calls. Uh, but she has been here once. Um, I don't know of any plans in the near future for her to return. Uh, but yes, she has been here. Pamela said of Greenmont Cemetery where um, Tammy Jo Alexander is buried that it reminded her of a fairy tale. And the day of the memorial was this like beautiful, sunny um, day with all of these people from the community gathered around the memorial service. So I can see why she um, might have reacted that way. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. Go ahead. My name's Evan. Hi, guys. Veronica and I were talking about this kind of a case, and I said, well, this could not happen you know, in 2016. This couldn't happen going forward because, yes, people go missing, and yes, there are kidnappings, and yes, there are murders, but with technology and the Internet, you probably wouldn't see it. You know, someone would, it would be very unlikely for a dead body to show up in a cornfield somewhere in America and for it not to be connected rather quickly. And I think, I guess I was wrong about that. I was talking to Veronica, and through your conversations, maybe the investigators can better explain, but... It's amazing that this could even still happen, but I guess it, it could. One of the things that we learned while we were uh, investigating this by talking specifically to Deborah Halbert, who's the author of a book on this particular um, issue, is that there are a lot of people who are um, what they called unidentified decedents, and they are people who you would think someone would have reported them missing or, or somehow they would be identified, but through some sort of accident, they're found without identification and, and they're never really identified. And some of the details that we know about Tammy Jo Alexander's life are um, that she ran away a lot and that uh, she may have not come from the most um, supportive household. So those are two those are two details that I don't think have necessarily like have to do with the time that she came from, even though that may have had to do with her specific case. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, as you said, and Evan 
thank you for putting the two of us on a panel together a year and a half ago, or however long, otherwise we wouldn't be here. Uh, obviously, there's, there's technological advancements now. There's, there's the NamUs system, which we talked about, which you know, basically now you, know, there's, you can go on the internet and look for missing people, yet instead of sort of this disparate system of, you know, where there really wasn't a central clearinghouse for information about missing people, you know, there is now, you know, run by the federal government, the Justice Department. So that's made it a lot better as far as trying to identify people, and that actually helped in this case. Uh, but as you said, that still doesn't mean that there aren't cases where, sadly, just like this, somebody is found and unidentified for a long time, or the far more common that we know of, somebody goes missing, and it just, if ever they're found, uh, it's, it's some kind, sometimes can take a long time. I mean, I, I probably have 10 stories in my files of, of cases where people have called me about missing people that just, they have no clue where they are. Yeah. Hi, my name is Olivia Lopez, and uh, I guess I just kind of wanted to hear you guys talk about maybe how your investigation has changed since you started. I kind of have this idea that as you release the podcast, maybe somebody somewhere calls and has new information. I don't know if that ever happens or even for the investigators, but maybe did your ideas totally change from where you started? Um, I'll, I'll start. My idea did change, but not because more people came forward throughout the process. It's because I learned more throughout the process. Um, and I think that, Gary, you could speak specifically to the Rainbow Prison Ministries example. Yeah, I mean, that... Um is, as we were saying earlier, it's just such a mystery because everybody who was associated with it is dead, and the, the records, if there were records, don't seem to be anywhere around. I mean, that is one instance where the, the podcast prompted calls and information. Reliable information is a whole different question. We don't know. Uh, but at least it prompted information. Um, you know, the hope is, I mean, obviously this thing has an existence beyond tonight. I mean, you know, people will be able to find it, and, and the hope is... Perhaps, you know, not, if not tomorrow, if not next week, if not next month. I mean, those would be the better alternatives, but maybe sometime in the future somebody stumbles on this and knows something and takes it upon themselves to, to, to say something. Sure, and we have had actually news come out since we started. I mean, we had an idea for the narrative structure of what we wanted to do, how to tell the story, um, but I think it might have been through our reporting we've, we found out that there was this DNA being tested, which is something that we wanted to talk about in the last episode that we, you know, that's, that was new information that came out, not like as a result of this, but during the course of this. I mean, it, it was tough for me as, as somebody who, uh, when I have news, I want to tell it very fast, <laughs> like, as probably folks I work with know, uh, and, and sort of, the, you know, sort of holding on sometimes for through the structure and making sure we had it as part of the narrative podcast. It made everything much stronger, but my sort of you know, repertorial kind of, hey, we know this, I've got to tell the world tomorrow. I had to kind of harness that sometimes. I'm glad you did, though. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lisa. I just had a quick question. As journalists, I know you're supposed to, like, remove yourselves from the story, not let it impact you, not have, like, a bias or anything like that. So besides this podcast, I was wondering if this story impacted you at all as you got deeper into it and if you felt any connection to Tammy Joe at all. Absolutely. I think it would be, it, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't, right? You can't learn more about this girl and her life and her likes and dislikes and the story about how she used to play in the flooded ditch behind um, her home with her sister and just these kind of stories that bring somebody to life and not, you know, want 
and not be on her side and not relate to her, especially, I mean, especially as a woman. I was a 16-year-old girl once. Um, so it was, you know, it would be really hard for me not to be more attached. And I think with this particular story, um, that's okay. And with this, me this medium of storytelling, I think that it may have helped us, you know, relay that message a little bit better. Yeah, I'd agree. And, uh, and, and it, it, you, can, you can be sensitive and thoughtful and fair and, 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 and caring about the subject you're, you're writing about or, or podcasting about, falling back to my old self here, writing about, uh, but, um, but still be completely impartial. I mean, that may sound incongruous to a degree, but, but you can do both. Hi, uh, my name is Dennis O'Brien. I've asked Gary and Veronica a lot of questions, so I'm going to ask something to the investigators uh, and well, to the investigator and Sheriff York. Uh, the the book Skeleton Crew was fascinating and kind of the web sleuth thing, and haven't had the chance to bother you guys with questions. How do you feel about web sleuths and that type of thing? Do you get a lot of information from folks uh, that is helpful? Do you get inundated with information that's unhelpful. How do you guys view them? It seemed in the book anyway, there was kind of a mixed set of emotions as to what they bring to the table. And I'm not sure if that's something you could speak to, but would be fascinated to know. Well, I think Investigator Schneider probably dealt with the web sleuths and firsthand to a degree, so yes. Uh, I had actually never heard of web sleuths prior to Carl Koppelman coming forward. Uh, and I still don't know a whole lot about it other than it's a group of people who just pretty much do their own research. Uh, and that's really all I know about them. As far as information coming forward, um, a little bit of both. There's, as Gary said, you know, there's some information that comes and right off the bat you think this is a little off the wall and, and uh, it come, you know, it, it, when you look into it, it's, that's exactly what it is. Is there a lot of good information coming forward as well? Absolutely. Um, and that probably outweighs the information that uh, we find it not be helpful. But as I've always said, I encourage anybody who thinks they have any information whatsoever that can help us in this case to call. Email. You can do it anonymously. You can reach us at 585-243-7100 right at the sheriff's office. Please, if you have any information that you feel is helpful in this case, let us be the ones to determine whether or not it's useful or not useful. Okay, and so. if we don't have any more questions, I think um, that's the end. This podcast is produced by the Democrat and Chronicle and WXXI News. Special thanks to Norm Silverstein, Randy, Gold Randy Gorbman, Juan Vasquez, Evan Dawson, Megan Mack, Elisa Orlando, Sue Rogers, Andrew Croucher, Andrew Whelan, Mike Scipioni, Kristen Tutino, John Heleniak, Bree Merkel, and everyone else at WXXI who worked with us on so many levels behind the scenes to make this happen. And I want to follow up with some DNC folks, most who are still there, and a couple who were, were very vital in the beginning, moved to Ohio, unfortunately, one of them. But uh, um, Karen Magnuson, who's been very supportive from the start, Angie Nassar, who's been, she's put a lot more work into this than you can even imagine. Uh, Max Schulte, our, our wonderful photographer, who did a lot of the photos and the videos that you saw. Leah Balcone, Scott Norris, and to uh, Denise Young and Sarah Krupe, who both were here sort of when this was at the start at the DNC and really helped sort of get it off the ground. I'm Veronica Volk, WXXI News. And I'm Gary Craig with the Democrat and Chronicle. Thanks for listening.
If you've made it this far and you still can't get enough Finding Tammy Joe, go to our website, findingtammyjoe.com. It's where all of our episodes will live on in perpetuity, and you can also engage with videos and pictures. We have Tammy Joe's letters, some old family photos, some archival documents, and a lot of stuff that you might enjoy. That's findingtammyjoe.com.